I'm gonna love you Like no one's love you Come rain or come shine Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, good to be back. We are repositioning from a left-wing podcast to an anarchic podcast. Perhaps a twisted podcast, (laughs) because one of the two co-hosts of this show has finally seen the Joker movie. Let's just say I've been (laughs) red-pilled. Will, for months, I think, has very much been a skeptic of the Joker discourse... I guess, you know, before the movie had come out and when there was buzz around it, you know, you had the typical kind of uh, cynical film hipster view of the Joker, you know, I'm better than this. Uh, All the wrong people were kind of excited about the movie, it seemed like initially anyway. And then all of a sudden, all the wrong people were very condemnatory of the film. (laughs) It, It was immediately... All of a sudden, it was going to be a movie that was going to incite the unwashed masses to cause <laughs> cause crimes not unlike those of Mr. J. But now uh, you've actually seen the movie, Which, and this phony war yeah. can finally end, because there's actual text to work with now. What's so incredible about the way this kind of discourse works these days is that it plays out for months and months before anyone's seen the film. As a marketing tool. And it is just a marketing tool, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, that's another Joker's trick. That's another <laughs> scheme that the clown prince has played on me, getting me to fall into the same trap that I so often deplore. I did have some reservations about actually going to see the Joker movie because I thought it was going to be one of those things like Andy Warhol's Empire State Building movie where it's not about the actual seeing of it. It's about the idea of this movie existing and the the range of responses that that mere idea evokes. And maybe, you know, maybe it turns out to be one of those movies that I suppose like like the Warhol movie and nobody actually really goes to see. Like it could have easily had months and months of buzz. And then been a uh, bomb, right? Like just like yeah. uh, just like uh, the last Ghostbusters movie was, right? Yeah, I mean, who knows? Because just because it's lit up blue check checkmark Twitter doesn't mean that the common man, you know, <laughs> is is really that excited. For- it has, in fact, been a box office success in yeah. its opening weekend. So I did finally go to see it. Maybe chalk it up to low expectations, but I did have a pretty good time at it. Yeah, as I said before, it is sort of melancholy that the only way you can make a movie like this at the scale of Joker, a slow-paced character study with a difficult protagonist talking about difficult issues, is through the prism of a Batman character. I mean, how much like a comic book movie, how, how much does it feel like one? I mean, not a, not a whole lot, Because the trailer I saw for it uh, when I went to see the Godzilla movie... Uh-huh. The trailer made it look quite serious. Yeah, and it is very serious, to a fault, Mm -hmm. I would say. But it feels more like kind of a second-rate taxi driver. Mm -hmm. More like that than... A Batman movie. Right, right, right. But, you know, all the discourse leading up to it has been talking about it being the incel Joker. You know, some of that has come from the fact that, you know, the Joker has been repositioned as this... You know, well, lo- he's, lonely he, man. And he isn't he a, an idiom on on kind of the the alt right as well? Yeah, the Joker has like the Heath Ledger Joker particularly has become kind of an alt right. He was sort of proto Pepe like figure. Yeah, and this particular Joaquin Phoenix Joker, we hear enough about these sad, lonely white men who are you know one of the Trump constituencies, and you know there's so much talk about to what extent. Can you make a movie that's from that point of view? To what extent can you empathize with people like that? 
yeah, to what extent should you? Yeah, and because this movie is following very obviously in the footsteps of Taxi Driver and King of Comedy, but it's coming out in this context of people like, you know, Dylan Roof. Right. Those in, Elliot Rodger. Yeah, pe- yeah, people like that. You know, there's the idea, is it is it glamorizing people like that? Uh, the incel angle is actually not really that heavily prominent mm-hmm. in the film. Well, Michael Moore, of course, patron saint of the show, did a, a Facebook post just the other day where he uh, he basically has a kind of a class reading of it. He thinks the film's quite indispensable. Well, I mean, I think he's being maybe a little <laughs> hyperbolic, but I do think the movie's politics are, on the whole, not that bad. Bruce Wayne's father, Thomas Wayne, is a character in the movie, and he's uh, almost a Trumpian figure. Mm. He's this businessman oligarch who decides to run for mayor of Gotham and he incites this class uprising by calling poor people clowns. So it's the first Batman movie where the Wayne family is depicted as the villains. Mm-hmm. Well, there's something to that. Yeah. The the Joker character himself is is studiously apolitical and I think the movie does not support per se the uprising the juggalo uprising that we see of these clowns killing the rich but the movie does have a little bit of a like lib plea for civility you know the the upper classes need to fund good social programs <laughs> right, I mean right. that's that's the main inciting thing the fact that this the characters social programs have been cut well, which which was it's the Dark Knight Rises that ends with Bruce Wayne basically building a charter school or something right or he, right. he makes some kind of like he turns his home into a shelter for wayward youth right right he does like the noblesse oblige that would have stopped the, the Bane uprising if, if he'd done it sooner and I think you know this movie's politics are basically there Uh but i've seen much worse politics in Mm -hmm. superhero movies i have to say i'm a little anxious about uh seeing this movie which i'm going to at some point because this is one of those things and this goes far beyond the joker where there's so much discourse and buzz and you know posturing and argument that happened but happens now before anything like this even comes out i don't know how i'm going to go into it and actually just watch it and come out with some opinion of it that I can rightly call my own because I feel like I'm already bringing so much when I go in there had the movie come out a few weeks ago I would have been bringing a skepticism of it I would have thought that there was something first of all just kind of lame about the idea of trying to you know do you know fuck who needs another comic book movie Uh you know and I would have also I guess been a little bit suspicious of maybe of a kind of a implicit you know right of center aura about the thing but then for the reasons that we said before you know after kind of seeing all the sort of moral panic about it if i'd have seen it say last week i would have gone into it very much in the spirit of you know god damn it i'm gonna actually enjoy this because i'm not gonna let those prudes start a stupid moral panic about a comic book movie i have to admit that was kind of the spirit i went right. into it with but but now i you know if i when i see it now i'm gonna be going in with sort of all of that discourse in my head, and I think that's going to be kind of dizzying. I suspect that at the end of the day, the movie is probably a slightly better than average uh, movie that's still very much part of this genre, and that Joaquin Phoenix is good because he's an incredibly talented actor, but that basically if you just saw the movie without any of this discourse attached to it, you'd kind of shrug and be like, well, that was okay. That was a decent use of 
you know, 90 minutes or two hours or whatever. That's my suspicion, but of course we'll never know because now when I see it, the mere act of seeing it is now interwoven with all this discourse. Yeah, I mean, I will say that it was interesting to see a comic book movie that is willing to offend. Mm -hmm. And it was instructive for me to see the movie after hearing so much about this incel panic. The fact that the movie isn't even really about that, Mm -hmm. but it is very much about class, Mm -hmm. makes one realize that a lot of the people causing this moral panic are either blind to the issues of class in the movie or they find it just vaguely unsavory like they link the movie's class anxiety with like incel reddit worlds which is very revealing but i mean in your view like do you think michael moore's reading is borne out i mean because i would be surprised if i went to see this and came away thinking this is like a left-wing film i wouldn't call it a Mm left-wing film i would call it a liberal film Mm -hmm. because i mean with um something like the dark knight rises which we did way back i guess not quite in michael and us season one i guess in season two Uh we went into watching the dark knight rises or rewatching it I think kind of prepared for the second time this is the second time you and I had seen it together to kind of tear apart the reactionary politics of it and we sort of found that, but more than anything else, it was just incoherent. I think The Dark Knight Rises is a conservative Democrat film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. Whereas The Dark Knight is a Republican film. Yeah, it's a neoconservative, openly neoconservative film, which in a way is kind of better than better than its successor for that reason, because the politics are bad, but at least they're somewhat coherent. And also, just talking about how the discourse can mess with your head, I need to get a little distance from this too, because I feel like so many of my reactions are just reactions to specific like reviews that I dislike. Right, I mean, this is part of what I mean. It's like, how can you go into something, anything anymore, that's a piece of mass culture and just objectively forget about enjoying it, but just objectively experiencing it? Because especially if you're uh, on Twitter, if you're on social media, or, you know, if you, if like you, there's a cavalcade of film critics that you don't like that you read nonetheless. <laughs> um, so all this stuff is like swirling around in your head. It's like the scene in The Simpsons with the like, you know, dental plan, Lisa needs braces, except for you, it's like a host of really hack film critics that you hate or whatever. Well, you know, art doesn't exist in a vacuum. <laughs> so to some extent, aren't we always reacting to the discourse around anything? Aren't we always responding to our preconceived notions? And I'm thinking as I'm sitting here now, well, maybe this is my big break. This is my big chance. You know what I mean? You don't just walk on to a network show without experience. Now, I know it's an old hackneyed expression, but it happens to be the truth. You've got to start at the bottom. I know. That's where I am, at the bottom. That's a perfect place to start. So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest king of comedy, Rupert Pupkin. His name is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pipkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert. Pupkin. P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight, the whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Robert De Niro. Jerry Lewis in a Martin Scorsese picture. The King of Comedy. We did want to venture into the Scorsese oeuvre, perhaps unusual territory for this podcast, but I think there's plenty to talk about with a movie that, of course, is one of the key inspirations for Joker. That is 1982's The King of Comedy. 
The last time Will and I saw this together, it was actually at the Royal Cinema in Toronto where he introduced it. And I believe you described it then as you ended your introduction by saying this is my favorite movie. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's a movie that encapsulates the most number of things that I'm interested in, whether it's old showbiz mm-hmm. or, you know... I was going to say it's because it's it's so heavily autobiographical for you, you see. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you laugh, but I mean, the horrendous amount of rejection in the movie. I mean, if you are afraid of rejection, as yeah. I think plenty of us are. All of us are. You will find something that speaks to you in this movie. It's a movie that the older I get, more layers keep getting revealed to me. It always speaks to me whatever moment in my life I'm in. Yeah, you know, you introduced me to it. And it's definitely one of my favorite movies, too. And this might have been my fourth or even fifth time watching it, maybe more than that. But I noticed a bunch of things this time that I'd never uh, picked up on before. So the protagonist of the film, who I identify with very strongly, is (laughs) Rupert Pupkin, uh, often misspelled, often mispronounced, (laughs) played by Robert De Niro. He is a 34-year-old, I think he works in the communications industry in some way. He is a messenger boy. I the think. only time you see him at work is when he goes in to use the phone, mm-hmm. right? But you don't really get a sense of his working life. But his real identity is that he is an aspiring stand-up comedian. There is no evidence that he has ever actually performed in front of an audience, but he has studied the craft. He has a basement full of cardboard cutouts of like Liza Minnelli and stuff. Paraphernalia. And in particular, he has studied the work of Jerry Langford, a Johnny Carson-like late night talk show host played by Jerry Lewis. He's obsessed with Jerry Langford and he often hangs outside the Jerry Langford show, the studio where it's taped, along with the other autograph hounds. Right. And this is how the film kind of opens right after we see the Langford show itself on air. You see Rupert Pupkin outside of uh, the studio and he's kind of, you get the sense there's a whole community of these people. Uh, somebody says to him, hey, Rupert, you know, what did, you know, did you get anything or whatever? So it's kind of like R slash Langford or whatever, <laughs> the, the little community is here they tried it last night they're going to try it tomorrow so that's that's who Rupert Pupkin is is among as this kind of Beatlemania scene greets Langford while he leaves the studio and tries to get to his car but we also join Pupkin just as he's about to rebrand so when he's with his fellow autograph hounds he's like ah you know it's it's not my whole life you know (laughs) He Uh, he needs to be above them because even though he's aware that he's doing the same thing they are his identity is premised on I mean look I'm not this because like Jerry and I, we're part of the same, we're actually part of the same scene. You know, we're, we're colleagues. He's a fellow comedian. As Jerry is trying to make his way to his limo and he gets in the backseat, he's accosted by another super fan, Masha, played by Sandra Bernhard. And Pupkin helps sort of keep the crowd back, sort of clumsily using his body to keep the crowd back. And then as Langford gets back in his limo, he hops in. You know, hey, can I just have a moment of your time, please? Please, you know, Langford out of the goodness of his heart, I guess. Mm. Or just because Also it's... because his defenses are worn down. Like, yeah. uh, like Pupkin says something to him like, you know, I don't want to be rude, but I did just, you know, put, put myself on the line for you just now. Yeah, so yeah. if I could just stay in the car and have five minutes of your time, that would be great. And they have a conversation, really a one-way conversation, where Pupkin is laying out... You know, look, I'm I'm dynamite. I'm a brilliant comedian. This this is, I think, my big chance in showbiz. I would love to be on your show. Please listen to my act. And he is constantly asking himself questions that he assumes Langford would like. Like you know, he's he's playing two sides of the conversation. 
Langford gives him quick perfunctory showbiz advice. You know, you got to start at the bottom. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's where I am. I'm at the bottom. (laughs) And that's a perfectly good place to start. (laughs) And then finally, his defenses are worn down again to the point where he says, look, call my office, call my assistant, send us a tape. We'll listen to it. Rupert lives in a fantasy world. So from this point on, he assumes that he's got the green light to go ahead he and Jerry are best buds. As Jerry tries to get, just get into his building, he can't break away for Pupkin as he's, you know, he's trying to do a joke. He's trying to say, uh, you know, every time he's about to get away, he'll interject again. It'll be like, Jerry, just want to say, if you want to get lunch sometime, anytime, it's on me, it's on me. <laughs> and that cuts to a Rupert Pupkin fantasy where there's kind of role reversal and they're, you know, clearly longstanding friends and Jerry is begging him to take over the show. <laughs> And over the course of this conversation, you know, a fan comes up and he's not asking for Jerry's autograph. He's asking for Rupert's autograph. And Rupert is very kind of noncommittal. He says, you know, Jerry, I'd do anything for you. Friendship is everything. But don't ask me to do six weeks. I can't do six <laughs> weeks, Jerry. I can't even take control of my own life for six weeks. <laughs> and what's incredible is in the midst of this fantasy, we then see what's actually going on, which is Rupert Pupkin alone in his basement acting out the fantasy But what's interesting here is the juxtaposition of Pupkin as he imagines himself in the fantasy where he's totally cool and collected and what he actually sounds like when he's kind of ventriloquizing his own fantasy where he's crying and he's getting emotional. I think that's that was very powerful. I don't think I'd ever quite noticed that juxtaposition before. We see a couple of fantasy scenes of him and Jerry as colleagues and they get each a little more real each time or or like they seem to become realer to Pupkin each time. And in all of them, uh, Jerry Langford is this kind of patriarchal figure. Pupkin always gives him a certain amount of deference. He's a grand old man of showbiz, but it's also clear that Langford is jealous. In the fantasies, Langford is being overtaken by Pupkin. Like, it's not enough to be Jerry. He's got to surpass Jerry. At least once in his life, every man is a genius. And I'll tell you something, Rupe. It's going to be more than once in your life for you. It's going to be a number of times because you've got it. From what I've heard here, yeah, you've got it. And you're stuck with it. And I don't care if you wanted to get rid of it. You couldn't. It's always going to be there. Now, I know there's no formula for it. I just don't know how you do it. And I'm not curious, mind you, because I want to use the material. I want you to understand that. I'm just curious because I don't know how you do it. I really have to ask you that. How do you, how do, you do it? I think it's that I look at my whole life and I, I see the awful, terrible things in my life and turn it into something funny. I, I, it just happens. The final major character of the film is Rita, played by Diana Abbott who is a bartender in New York who Rupert once knew in high school. She's sort of a former homecoming queen, uh, humbled by life. And you get the sense that Rupert has kind of tried this this on with her before. When he goes to the bar to see her again, you know, he gives her a rose and she says, ah, yes, I remember. You're, you're Mr. Romance over here. Mm-hmm. Rupert's relationship to women is uh, very funny in the movie. Uh, unlike Travis Bickle, he doesn't... If he has sexual desire, it's so sublimated that he can't even recognize it. He sees Rita not as a sexual conquest, but as like a symbol for all of his thwarted ambitions, all of the people who didn't respect him in high school. 
He's only been, you know, talking to her for, I mean, it can't be more than a few hours. And as he's walking to her door, he says, you know, I love you. I'm in love with you. I can give you, I can give you a better life. I can give you one. I was just speaking to Jerry Langford. And what was so, what's so interesting about this scene um, is that she actually does invite him up and he's, and he says no. Right, because he doesn't. He, he sort of he wants to rescue her, much like how Travis Bickle wanted to rescue Jodie Foster, mm-hmm. although not in the same. Well, well, in you know, we were talking about this while we were watching the movie, and the, and the difference with Travis Bickle is that he actually is sexually attracted to Sybil Shepherd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But there's a similar masculinity and crisis at work in this film that Rupert Pupkin exhibits because he, he it's still the same kind of. Uh, rescue fam- fantasy you know motivated by some kind of status anxiety and wanting to own a woman like he wants her as his arm candy to impress jerry with and he mm-hmm. wants her as his his queen well in know? in the fantasy in one of the fantasies the one where jerry is saying to him uh yep you've you, you know you've got it you've got it uh <laughs> you couldn't lose it if you tried yeah uh, or yeah. whatever <laughs> one of the takeaways from that is uh Pupkin imagines being invited up to Jerry's uh, house for the week or weekend, you know, for for social reasons, but also because they have some they have some work to do. They got some work (laughs) they need to do. And then he says to Jerry, uh, well, can I bring someone? And Jerry says, a young lady. And he says, yes, a very special young lady. Yeah. Um, It's all about having that interaction. (laughs) mm -hmm. She is actually more central to to his entire arc than... uh, than his would-be comedy career mm-hmm. you know that is actually secondary yeah because later in the film he imagines himself on the langford show where there's a mystery guest and the mystery guest is his former high school principal mm-hmm. who we learn through the fantasy failed him at everything and was you know not very nice and he says uh, rupert i'm i'm just here to apologize to you in front of the nation. We were wrong. You were right. And thank you for giving meaning to our lives. Yeah, and he says, and by the way, I'm an ordained minister and I'm here to perform a ceremony and marry you and Rita right here on the spot. What do you say? What do you say? And then as he's performing the ceremony, what is it that he says? He uh, says, we wholeheartedly apologize yeah. for having wronged you. And he, and he says, uh, you know, I hope you have a long, but I hope you both have a long and wonderful reign together. Yeah, Not as, life together. As king and queen. Uh-huh. The Rita character came out more forcefully this time than any other viewing for me. Diana Abbott obviously has the least showy of the four central performances. Mm-hmm. Well, but, because she's the sanest one. Yeah. Well, besides Langford, obviously. But, but Langford's yeah. obviously a little crazy. He's too. washed up, yeah. Rita is this kind of embodiment of the quiet desperation of mm-hmm. life, you mm-hmm. know. She is an embodiment of thwarted dreams and ambitions in her own way. She's very much resigned to just being a bartender and you know, the fact that she invites Rupert up after this bad date indicates that she's resigned to just a series of kind of banal, meaningless encounters. Well, and, and the fact that she ultimately does agree to come with him to Langford's house, even though she has reason to believe, you know, she doesn't really trust Rupert, mm-hmm. right? I guess she kind of hedges and she thinks, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's a, if there's even a 5% chance he might be telling the truth, I need to go. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, and then something that, I mean, I certainly noticed for the first time in this scene is when they do show up and of course Langford eventually arrives and is furious with them and, uh, and eventually kicks them out. Um, as he's kicking them out, Rita actually steals something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then furthermore, even as she's kind of apologizing, she's saying, I'm so sorry, Mr. Langford. I didn't realize, you know, he told me that you were friends. I did. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. She then starts saying, if there's anything I can do, if there's anything I can do, just name it, you know, whatever. And this is the first time I've ever been aware of this particular aspect of her character, because you realize that even though she's much saner than Popkin, she's just as desperate kind of financially 
And she has the same kind of status anxiety. Mm-hmm. And even though those things don't manifest themselves in the form of these elaborate fantasias like they do for Pupkin, you know, they're kind of present nonetheless. So much so that even as she's kind of apologizing for the stuff, she's still trying to get something out of the encounter. And she's, you know, stealing, she's stealing something as well. It's funny. I mean, when this movie came out, it was by no means universally beloved. And uh, Pauline Kael, in her withering pan of the movie, actually singled out that scene where she steals something as saying, I hated that scene. Hmm. I hated that he won't even give us Rita, you know? Everybody in the movie is, you know, from her point of view, I I can't remember her exact wording, Mm. but it's like everybody in the movie is detestable. And in fact, I don't know if that's the, I mean, I I recognize the force of that point, but I don't know if Rita doing that makes her detestable. I I mean, I don't think so. I disagree with that. I think, I think Rita remains sympathetic in spite of doing those things. And in fact, in some ways, because of doing those things, because we're forced to confront just how, just how desperate she is. And she deserves to be desperate a lot less than Rupert does. She seems like a good person. And yet look at what the world's given her. Roger Ebert also wrote an ambivalent review of the movie when it came out. And he said, uh, Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy is one of the most arid, painful, wounded movies I've ever seen. It's hard to believe Scorsese made it. Instead of the big city life, the violence and sexuality of his movies like Taxi Driver and Mean Streets, what we have here is an agonizing portrait of lonely, angry people with their emotions all tightly bottled up. This is a movie that seems ready to explode, but somehow it never does. That lack of release disturbed me when I first saw it. I kept straining forward, waiting for the movie to let loose, and it kept frustrating me. Maybe that was the idea. This is a movie about rejection with a hero who never admits that he has been rejected, and so there is neither comic nor tragic release, just the postponement of pain. Now, I mean, he says that, and I think, what's the problem? (laughs) But compared to the other Scorsese movies, this one is rigorously objective. Taxi Driver, you're constantly seeing it from Travis Bickle's hothouse point of view. But this one, it's like surveillance camera footage at times. And even when we see Pupkin's fantasies, they're done in the same style. It's like a rigorous, objective chronicle of what he's fantasizing. Pupkin and Langford are both very closed-off characters. Pupkin never lets down his absurd facade. He's constantly performing as if he's on a TV show. He's constantly talking in the patter of Johnny Carson talk show dialogue. And uh, Jerry Lewis, as Jerry Langford, gives you the bare minimum. When he's off stage, giving anything is an imposition on his privacy. I mean, I guess uh, a difference I would, a perspective I would have with Ebert in that review is like, I find something very kind of human about that. Mm-hmm. The austerity of what we're given about these characters, nevertheless, I think speaks very strongly about how they are. And, you know, I identify very strongly with sides of both those characters. The one character who does give a lot. Uh, who, where all her emotions are externalized is the Sandra Bernhard character, who's an interesting counterpoint to the other two. Yeah, and I was going to say, um, I mean, the thing that her care, the thing that's interesting about her character is, unlike Pupkin, I mean, she's not financially desperate. Mm-hmm. She's a trust fund kid, you know. Yeah. She has this big Manhattan townhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's perfectly comfortable, but she doesn't seem to have any friends. Just like Rupert, she seems to have had a troubled relationship to her parents. You know, at one point she says, you know, never told either of my parents that I loved them. And I think the way I interpret that, because she doesn't have, she's not motivated by a desire to be famous so she can be comfortable. She already has comfort. Rupert, there is, you know, there is a sense of that, right? Mm -hmm. He talks about having the big house in Malibu. Well, he lives in his mother's basement and he lives, you know, across the Hudson. We see from his porch the Manhattan skyline, which, you know, may as well be five million miles away. So the way I interpret Sandra Bernhardt's character, what, what she symbolizes 
is that, uh, you know, the attraction uh, to fame and status, you know, goes beyond simply money. You can have money, you can have comfort, and you can still be sort of blinded by the light of those things and just in awe of anybody who has them. And unlike Rupert, she is, I think, motivated partly by sexual attraction to Langford, right? Mm -hmm. After, After they kidnap Langford, spoiler, she is trying to have a sexual, she's trying to engineer a sexual encounter with him. Well, she and Pupkin in both their ways want to own Langford. Even though she claims to love Jerry and wants to have a sexual encounter with him, she gets off on holding a gun to him. Mm-hmm. Can I make a somewhat uh, hackneyed point before we get to sort of uh, our, our bigger thoughts about the movie? Go ahead. When I think of the idea of King for a Night, which is sort of the, the theme of this movie, right? The idea, you know, as, as Rupert says towards the end of the film, it's better to be King for a Night than a Schmuck for a lifetime which is another way of saying you know i would rather be famous for 10 seconds than not be famous at all and i don't i don't care what i have to do in order to get it i don't care how much i have to debase myself what this makes me think of more than anything else is you know not the culture in which the movie's kind of set uh which is this culture of like late night tv just a handful of networks as you pointed out jerry langford would have been incredibly famous because there were only like three or four networks that people watched so he's getting tens of millions of viewers every night no what i think of is actually the celebrity culture we have today um, a culture where you know people rise and fall on, on the basis of one viral tweet, mm-hmm. where you can be incredibly famous for it's not even a day anymore mm-hmm. uh, or a night; it's a few hours or even a few minutes. Yeah, I it's, mean, it's funny because you know, ten years ago, people were talking about this movie in relation to reality TV, right? And, right. You know, Kim Kardashian and that sort of thing. Well, it makes me think of, um, and you know, we're going to do a whole other episode on this at some point. It's kind of the spiritual successor to our episode in the office, but. Uh, in the Ricky Gervais, Stephen Merchant joint extras, um, the Andy Millman character, you know, when he ends up in the in the Big Brother house at the end, right? He's who's he surrounded by? He's surrounded by all these people that maybe were on they were on TV for you know like a minute they had or they had some some minor thing that gave them public prominence, and now they're just clinging to it and they are debasing themselves. People do all kinds of ridiculous things in the Big Brother house, right? They act like animals. You know, they fight with each other. They actually kind of lose their humanity entirely and that's kind of what I think about not in relation to the movie specifically but in in the idea of kind of fame and status seeking that it's portraying which is kind of aptly summed up in the phrase king for a night I like the mix of eras that collide in this movie Jerry is obviously representative of a lot of old show business Um, there's a scene where they're in his home and they're looking at pictures on his counter and saying, oh, you remember that moment with Ray Charles? Oh, remember that famous moment when... So there's an extended Jerry Langford mythology. Which which is separate from the actual Jerry Lewis one. Right, who, of course, Jerry Lewis brings his own baggage to the role. (laughs) And there are actual pictures of Jerry Lewis as a child on the mantle. So we're invited to imagine a cross between his life and the life of a Johnny Carson type. But Jerry is winding down at this point. You know, mm-hmm. he's an older man. You know, this is very visible in the contrast between him and Sandra Bernhard, who's the type of comedian uh, who would have been unthinkable in the era of Jerry Lewis's prime. Well, uh, why? Just because there were no women on TV? Well, I mean, there were there were some women on TV, but certainly not a woman like that. Mm-hmm. A woman who's sort of so she's so kind of sexually forceful without being without subjugating herself to the male gaze. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like uh, the scenes between her and Jerry Lewis 
There's an enormous, I think, both gender and generational tension in those scenes. Interesting. And when, spoiler, Rupert becomes famous at the end of the movie, I do wonder how long he'll be able to sustain this because he's so backwards looking in his idea of fame. So I want to, I want to, uh, I think we have a little bit of a, a possible disagreement over how to interpret the end of the film, but, it, but nevertheless an interesting one. But uh, I, I do think that the, the climactic scene, there's one more thing that needs to be said about it, where, you know, Rupert obviously having kidnapped Langford, his kidnapping demand is, you know, unless you put me on the show... Um, unless I'm the first act on the show and you introduce me with this monologue and you let me do my act, Jerry Langford dies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this seems like the climax of the movie. You know, we see him, we see him do the full routine. And he was king for a night. And he was king for a night at the end. But it turns out that what actually matters is, is he has to rush away from the studio as the movie finishes and he's got to get to the bar where Reed is working and he's got to get up on the, on the bar and and turn on the TV and say, look, there, there I am. Him being on TV is and doing this, you know, be, being seen by you know ninety million people or whatever is less important than her seeing that he could be that kind of person. Yeah. That's on she's TV. not Rita. She is all of his disappointments. She's, she's every person in high school that didn't pay him ad- adequate respect, mm-hmm. you know, male or female. Every person that made fun of him, beat him up. Every woman he was attracted to who didn't reciprocate his his feelings. All of it. His high school principal who failed him at everything, and probably his parents as well, who, uh, you know, we it's implied were very abusive to him. We see his stand-up act, and it's perfectly mediocre. Yeah. He knows the rhythm of, of what a stand-up act on a TV show should sound like. But the one thing that's kind of interesting about it is he has figured out how to channel his pain into his art. Mm-hmm. Like, there are a lot of jokes about the ugliness of his upbringing the one about how uh you know his parents were the the lead up is something about how his parents were both you know they both vomited constantly he thought that was a sign of maturity and then he talks about his dad kicking him or punching him in the chest and him vomiting everywhere and thinking now i'm a man yeah which i don't think it ever registered quite what that what that line was saying but it's unbelievably bleak i mean all that he's missing is a certain amount of talent. This is De Niro at his least charismatic. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine a, an audience really ever loving this guy. But it's interesting because he does get, he gets the scheduled applause lines because yeah. people recognize there's, you know, a liturgy to late night TV and you're, and you're uh-huh. supposed to applaud on certain beats and it basically looks convincing. You know, nobody thinks that he's a kidnapper, right? And I feel like what uh, the movie's doing there is it's telling us that you know, to a certain extent, if somebody can just, you know, tick a few boxes, if you put them on a platform, people will take them really seriously because the legitimacy comes, you know, just being visible, legitimacy and status and fame come with that. And people actually, they stop interrogating you in the same way or being as critical. There's a big dichotomy in this movie between the spaces where the haves and the have-nots can exist, whether it's Langford's office versus the reception area, mm-hmm. whether it's Manhattan versus Newark. Oh, yeah. Um, well, th- there's a scene in the reception area where the receptionist is holding him up, and there's another guy, an unnamed character, uh, and she just says, oh, yes, go ahead, right? And he, right. because he's got, he's got the privilege, like, those rooms are only a few feet apart, but actually they're worlds apart. Yeah, and it seems so arbitrary. And if you can just get to that other side, Scorsese symbolizes... If you can just physically get over there. Yeah, yeah. And, and Scorsese symbolizes it in that opening credit sequence where it's Sandra Bernhard's hands up against the mm-hmm. limo window as if it's a television screen. Mm-hmm. Something else that I think is meant to add to the ambiguity of how we are supposed to receive 
uh, Rupert's act and whether, you know, how seriously we're supposed to take it and how funny it's supposed to be in the world of the film is that before the show begins, uh, Tony Randall, who is guest hosting, uh, is complaining about a line that he has to deliver, which admittedly is hack stuff. And Scorsese himself appears as kind of a stagehand or something who thinks the joke is is hilarious. Mm-hmm. And what's the joke? It's something like, uh, you know, be, you know, because uh, there will be no monologue this evening. My uh, writers have been executed by the network firing squad. Right, right. And and you know, he b- backstage, he's sort of saying like. Uh, oh God! Do you re- this? Do you, you want me to read this hack shit? And, and then a- Randall can barely, you know, maintain. He can barely hide his <laughs> contempt for the material on stage. But then the first joke Rupert Pupkin tells is something, you know, what? What? It's like a joke. The the premise is just like the particular small part of New Jersey he's from. Is like it's like, uh, oh, is there anyone there from here? Oh, good. No, we can all relax. Like yeah, it's yeah. the same level of joke. I was from you know this part of New Jersey, which was not then a federal offense. <laughs> right. 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 So the denouement of the film is a montage showing the media reception to Pupkin's appearance on the show. He's on the cover of every magazine, he's on every news show, and he becomes a kind of hero figure, a folk hero. Somebody who was able to crash that invisible barrier between the reception area and the office. Uh, The people's star. He serves a short amount of time in prison, is paroled, he has a best-selling autobiography that's soon to become a major motion picture. He, he and his people are weighing several attractive offers. He still considers Jerry Langford a mentor and a friend. <laughs> In fact, we see Jerry after he's escaped the apartment. He, he runs past a bunch of TVs showing Pupkin on the air and just like seething with contempt at it. <laughs> and we never see Jerry again Yeah, um, because his time is over. Mm-hmm. You know, he was already over the hill. Mm-hmm. And the last shot of the movie is Pupkin on his new TV show. So first I'll say, I wonder how long Pupkin will be able to sustain his fame. But then I think, you know, he does have the pattern of a talk show down. And maybe if you have a staff of writers, that's all you need. So so that's that's Will's interpretation of the movie. And I mean, I got to say, he's kind of this time around, he kind of he's kind of selling me on it a little better. I've tended to interpret the end of the movie a little bit differently because throughout the film, Pupkin's fantasies kind of do blend, you know, real elements and and kind of phony ones. They become harder to distinguish as fantasies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I've always wondered if, you know, I don't, I would never argue that the end of the film should be interpreted as a pure fantasy that, that, you know, the film means to imply that he gets arrested, he goes to prison and no one talks about what happened because clearly... Uh, clearly people would have been talking about it. Mm-hmm. But I've often wondered if the final outcome where, you know, he leaves prison years later and has a best-selling book and has his own show, I've, I've often kind of wondered what to do with that. In the past, I felt that that's perhaps too neat an ending. Um, it's odd that Sandra Bernhardt is not mentioned at all in the press coverage after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, right, exactly. But you have a more kind of literal interpretation, and tell us what that is. Well, I, I think, think... You've hinted at it yeah, already. Yeah, I, I think we're just meant to take it literally. I think the movie wants us to think that he does... He takes this shortcut to fame, and he becomes the new Jerry Langford, and he gets this show where there's an infrastructure built around him that will facilitate that to happen. You know, it's an incredibly cynical ending, and... Many have interpreted it much like the end of Taxi Driver as being kind of like a, a dying man's fantasy or something like that. But I almost feel like that's a bit of a, a more comforting reading of it. I'd forgotten that the end of Taxi Driver is in some ways so similar. And I believe, I think we've actually had the same kind of 
potential disagreement over that as mm-hmm. well. Because I always imagined it with Taxi Driver as sort of being Travis Bickle's like ideal outcome. Mm-hmm. And whether or not it actually happens is sort of left left open. I think Scorsese deliberately leaves it ambiguous. Um, but I don't know. It, it seems too easy for it to be fantasy. There was one other thing just on the theme of, of things I noticed this time that I'd never spotted before. When Rupert's in his basement acting out these elaborate fantasies, we see him or we hear his mom kind of intervene and say, you know, keep it down. And he's just going, mom, mom, you know, and he's and he's just kind of yelling, yelling back at her. But then in his in his stand up routine, he mentions that his mom has been dead for 10 years or mm-hmm. something like that. It's an interesting. This is choice. the first time I ever noticed that. And that leads me to believe, is it possible here? I mean, there's two possible interpretations of that, and both of them have very different implications. The first is that anytime we've heard his mom in the film, she actually hasn't been there. That she's a kind of non-corporeal matriarchal voice that exists as kind of a part of his psyche. And then, you know, the other interpretation is that, you know, he actually does live in his mom's basement, but he is actually hamming up his life story for the purposes of the, you know, he's actually making out his life story to be bleaker than it actually is. You see, I'm inclined to think that's what the case, the, the latter is the truth. But he does mention when he's arguing with Sandra Bernhard that he can't even pay his rent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's possible that he pays rent to his mother. In mm-hmm. fact, it's even likely that mm-hmm. he does. But it's also possible that he lives at home because he lives for free. Yeah, that adds another question mark, doesn't it? But like everyone else, I grew up in large part thanks to my mother. If she were only here today, I'd say, Hey, Mom, what are you doing here? You've been dead for nine years. (laughs) But seriously, you should have seen my mother. She was wonderful. Blonde, beautiful, intelligent, alcoholic. (laughs) We used to drink milk together after school. Mine was homogenized. Hers was loaded. Before closing, I'll read a little bit of Robin Wood's interpretation of the film. Robin Wood, a Marxist film theorist from the great city of Toronto, wrote a book called Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan, where he talked about gender and sexuality in Scorsese's films. You know, he doesn't say that Scorsese is a Marxist filmmaker. I think that would possibly be a stretch. But he does position this film and the relationship between Jerry Lewis and Robert De Niro as like Jerry Lewis is the the figure of, you know, the patriarch and, you know, the film exists within the context of patriarchal capitalism, decaying patriarchal capitalism. This essay, Two Films by Martin Scorsese. Langford's presence, Lewis's splendid performance, disciplined, precise, self-effacing, is itself eloquent. A pathetic, bitter, empty, totally isolated figure, he epitomizes the bankruptcy of patriarchy at this phase of consumer capitalism, the symbolic father essentially meaningless and obsolete, though still hysterically pursued. Wow. The chain of great, in quotes, father figures that passes through the entire development of Hollywood cinema endowed with attributes of moral-slash-spiritual grandeur and divine authority, of which Abraham Lincoln, in his various cinematic incarnations, can stand as exemplary, has dwindled to a lonely, barren man in an immense apartment of cold glass and glitter. Within the psychoanalytic context I have defined, the satire on the media takes on a resonance it entirely lacks when seen as the film's sole and simple subject. Today, the media have become the vehicle for the perpetuation of patriarchy, a patriarchy emptied of its earlier force and potency, continuing as longed-for fantasy fulfillment. The ambivalence towards the father inherited in the patriarchal family structure is repeated in the transference to the media. 
Endless promise, endless frustration, since the promise can be fulfilled only in fantasy and one is always cheated. The film's rigorous attitude towards its characters makes possible the precise, focused irony of the ending, so similar to that of Taxi Driver, yet so different. The absurdity of Rupert's status as celebrity, the total emptiness of his new signifier of success, stardom, king, father, is firmly held. The emptiness of King of Comedy against the plentitude of ordinary people. No wonder the public, the establishment press, the Motion Picture Academy, in short, America, preferred the latter. Yet it is the emptiness of Scorsese's film that exposes the illusoriness of ordinary people's plenitude. And one more word by Robin Wood, he says... While not calling Scorsese a Marxist filmmaker, he says, Yet every subject available must inevitably be structured by the major conflicts within the culture. What distinguishes the major artist is not an explicit ideological stance, but his slash her ability to pursue the implications of a given subject rigorously, honestly, and without compromise until its basis in those conflicts is revealed. Given that our culture is built upon interlocking structures of domination and oppression, such a pursuit, however innocent of any conscious ideological position, must inevitably produce radical insights, insights that can then be legitimately appropriated by overtly radical movements. Rupert Pupkin, ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Rupert Pupkin. Wonderful, Rupert Pupkin, ladies and gentlemen. Pumpkin, ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Rupert Pumpkin. Wonderful, Rupert Pumpkin, ladies and gentlemen.